as you have uh, done so far, you would continue to be with us, that you would be with the preaching of the word, that, Lord, uh, no one person would be exalted, only Christ and his word, that you would open our hearts ever more to uh, the importance of what this text we're going to be looking at has to teach us. So attend to our hearts, attend to our, our ears, help us to be quick to hear and bless the preacher who needs many, many sins forgiven, continuing to trust in Christ alone as his righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to take a break from Romans for just a few weeks. We're, we're due to get back into chapter 13, and I covet your prayers because um, uh, if any time in our church, in our history as a country, we need to understand our relationship with the state, it's now. And God's put it on my heart to do a lot more study and um, uh, on that passage. Uh, but do pray for me. Would you do that? Covet your prayers as we look at uh, the biblical teaching on our relationship with government as Christians. So, um, what are we doing this morning? Well, I've been pondering this particular text. Our text is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In terms of the insight and help it provides for how you and myself included are to think about those in our midst who are called to minister the word to us. Okay? Those we call pastors, those we call preachers or teaching elders. So I want to expound this text not because I think that there is a problem among us, but to offer help in the transition that under God's providence will be occurring this year. And I'll be doing this this week and in two weeks. I'll follow up. Nathaniel will be the meat. I'll be the bread on the sandwich. Okay, so again, just trying to give you guys this perspective biblically. And then in the future, I'll be doing a few more chapters just to kind of help the process along. But I'll be spending the bulk of my time back in Romans and finishing it up this summer. Of course, I'm referring to my retirement from pastoral ministry. Now, I'm not retiring from the kingdom, all right? I'm not uh, from kingdom work, uh, but I do sense that it is time for me to move in another direction while God willing, Cheryl and I will remain among you as members in good standing of this community. They're our church. We want to be able to do that. Um, so I'm grateful. I'm grateful to the Lord for these past 20 years here as the teaching elder and co-pastor with a group of great guys, the elders. And now next week, a prospective teaching elder candidate, Nathaniel Bickford, and his family, Kimberly and Lydia and Josiah and Miriam, will be with us. He will uh, meet with the elders and deacons next Saturday afternoon. Uh, there'll be a tea for Kimberly. Uh, they'll have a dinner at the Mountain View with uh, the elders and deacons and their wives that evening. He'll be preaching here Sunday morning. Uh, they'll share the meal with us, and he'll be up here afterwards to introduce himself more formally to the congregation and to um, present himself and receive questions you might have to put to him. I encourage you to pray, okay? Um, and you'll have opportunity to vote on the call the following week. Now, the elders present him to you because we think that he is both called and qualified. We wouldn't do that any other way. 
Okay, You've heard the bio, uh, but there will indeed be a transition. And I will be dealing with that today and in a few more sermons, as I said. I don't want to be presumptuous here uh, in this matter, for, for there's still next weekend and your vote... Uh, That'll clarify what the Lord's will is for this particular situation. Okay, I don't want to be presumptuous and say Nathaniel is the guy. Nevertheless, there's a transition. <laughs> and we're trusting that Nathaniel is that man. Now, <clears throat> with the proliferation of the internet and such social media as Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, many preachers and pastors have become very well known. Very well known. There are an abundance of annual conferences throughout the country, throughout the world indeed, where these capable and godly men make the circuit. And I've benefited from the ministries of some of these men, men like R. C., the late R.C. Sproul, John Piper, Kevin DeYoung, Alistair Begg. Others have expressed appreciation from people like Matt Chandler, David Pratt, and Paul Washer to name just a few. You know these names. I'm sure some of you do. And even these men have noted, I think wisely, in a guarded way, the danger of what has been called celebrity pastors. It is a danger. There are a couple of problems, you see. First, that these well-known preachers and teachers might come to be the functional teaching elders and shepherds of Christians more than their own flesh and blood flawed, geeky pastors. The teaching of these men might bear more weight and gain more influence to the degree that the folk judge and assess the men over them in the Lord in comparison with such gifted speakers. Uh, you know, the average pastor like myself, we don't have the resources these guys have. Just don't have them. Many of them are in larger churches and they have teams of researchers. Most pastors don't have that. Now I praise God for them. I'm grateful for them. I've learned from them, and so should you. But we need to put that all in perspective. And there's another problem, you see, not only with the celebrity pastor issue. Um, this is what a church faces whenever pastoral leadership changes. Those who have had a close tie with the long-tenured pastor may have difficulty accepting the care and leadership of a new pastor. It might happen. Don't want it to happen, but it might happen. Now, there was a major problem in the church at Corinth. Now, Paul had established that church under the influence of the grace of God and the Holy Spirit. It was in Paul's church. Paul was just the planting pastor, if you will. So he's there, maybe 18 months, he goes on to other churches, other places, but he hears through Chloe and her family that there's a problem. And Paul wastes no time bringing this up. Right at the very beginning of his letter, first chapter, he tackles this problem. And he'll tackle it more in chapter 3. And what was the problem? There was division in the church overtaking sides with various apostles and preachers that God brought to Corinth with the purpose, again, of establishing the believers there, bringing unbelievers to faith in Christ, laying the foundation of the gospel, and then moving on and others coming, again, edifying them through the preaching, helping them to grow on that foundation. 
There is no way that one's personality and particular giftedness can be separated from how a pastor or teaching elder ministers the word. You do it through who you are. But therein is the danger. The challenge is for you to focus, you see, as congregants, if you will, on the content of what's being preached and taught and to take that in with eager and appreciative hearts, though it comes through differences in personality, right? I'm going to say this for lack of, uh, well, Mark's a great teacher. And you're missing out if you're not in an adult Sunday school class. You're missing out. Now, I, I can say that, but it's not Mark. It's God's giftedness to the man, right? All right? But, but it's for the benefit of the church. It's a gift to us. So here's the problem. Paul gets at it right at the very beginning in chapter 1. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? That's the problem. And it's not too far off the beaten path in our culture, in our church culture, in the evangelicalism of this world. Here was a kind of false celebrity worship. Seeing the apostles and pastors as kind of, you know, celebrities. Some went so far as to reject all pastors for in a false kind of spirituality for they. No, we accept Christ only. Now these represented two wrong extremes, the problem. One was to elevate men to a higher place than they should be. Right? That's the problem. The other, the Christ-only party, the other was to fail to appreciate how the Lord God works through those he calls to preach and teach his word. All right? So those who reject men as called to preach and teach are wrong too. So, cliques were forming. Preferences were tightly held. And all of this created division within the church. It ever remains a danger. Now, we turn to chapter 3. And here we learn four important realities that can protect us from this problem. And I'm going to spend time with three of them this week and the fourth in two weeks. All right? They protect us. These realities protect us from such a serious problem and give us real help in seeing things through the lens of the gospel, through its wisdom and through its power. So here's the first reality. Here it is. If we're going to be on our guard, we need to understand the nature of the sin that lies at the root of this idolatry of preferring different ministers of the word and risking division in the church over it. Okay, so we need to understand the nature of the sin. 
Paul deals with that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, where he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? The root is rank carnality. It's carnality and persistent immaturity. Paul sees this as evidence that many in the church at Corinth since his day there, had not matured in Christ. From the time he had first been there with them, proclaiming the gospel, to the time he writes the letter, I don't know how many years or months pass by, but they're still infants. They're still carnal. They're, they have the Holy Spirit, but he's not the predominant influence in their lives. He stated that though back then, when, he had be, when they had become Christians, and even as he wrote the letter to them, he addresses them, interestingly enough, as saints, right? As Christians, as brothers. But he could not address them as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. He could not address them as spiritual, but as carnal. And the reason was that new Christians, though Christians are but babes in Christ, Right? They're just babes in Christ. New Christians have not have yet to mature in Christ, and they have much of their old life remaining with them in a functional way. All of us do, but new Christians usually have a lot more, just kind of popping out all over the place. They they make messes often. Now Paul came to Corinth in his capacities. He has two capacities. He was an apostle, so he had authoritative capacity that no one else has today. It's found in the Bible. And as an evangelist. He was a missionary. He, he was in new, uncharted territory in Corinth. There were no Christians in Corinth when Paul shows up. Right? They're not there. Okay? And uh, so Paul, what does he do? When the gospel is proclaimed and shared with unbelievers there, uh, again, it, 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 he did so in a rudimentary way. Okay? When Paul laid that foundation, when he preached the gospel, he did it in a basic rudimentary way. In the same way, okay, for the same reason, he did it that way for the same reason that you don't feed a newborn steak and potatoes, but rather milk. Right? And so when Paul lays the foundation there, he's presenting the gospel to Jews, yeah, who might have a little bit more of a head start, but to many, many Gentiles who did not. So again, he laid it very in rudimentary fashion, but that's still the gospel. Milk for a new baby is just as nutritious for them as steak and potatoes would be for an adult, right? Right? The gospel's the gospel. If it's presented in a rudimentary fashion or in more in-depth fashion, it's still the gospel. Okay, the capacities you see and the diets are different, but the nutritious power of the food is the same. It sustains life. Milk sustains life for a baby. Meat and potatoes sustain life for an adult. The gospel in its rudimentary presentation, 
okay? And in its more substantial presentations, it's the same, for it is the wisdom and the power of God. This is what Paul says in chapter 1, chapter 2. It is the food of Christ crucified. A little bit of Christ crucified in milk form. A little bit more of Christ crucified in more substantial forms. It's still Christ crucified. It's still the gospel. But you don't want to stay just taking in rudimentary ways of the gospel. You want to advance and mature and take on more. So in the first three chapters of this letter, Paul speaks of those, again, he describes them, first of all, those who are natural. He speaks of the natural person. And those who are spiritual, and he speaks of those who are carnal. Now, I need, I need to spend the bulk of my time here, all right? And it's not quite off the beaten path or off the subject. It's, 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 it's germane to the subject. Now, Paul talks about the natural, he talks about the spiritual, and he talks about the carnal. Now, this has led some to teach there is the possibility of a genuine believer remaining a carnal Christian. You heard that concept? Carnal Christian. Now, those who are natural are indeed unbelievers. The natural man is an unbeliever. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, that is the gospel, and its implications, because they're only understood with the aid of the Spirit. So without the Spirit of God, we remain unconverted, we remain natural, we remain completely on the flesh. But those who are spiritual are, in one sense, simply believers. We can say the one who's spiritual is simply a believer. However, every believer has remnants of his pre-conversion or natural life remaining in his or her heart. So we all are dealing with elements of carnality all the time. It's, it's, not, a, it's, not, a, it's not a condition. It's more or less a, 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 a well, um, a spectrum, I should say, of sorts. There's a degree of carnality in every one of our hearts. And at times can be the dominant thought, dominant, through, uh, though not rightful influence in our lives. It's not ever the rightful influence, but it can be the dominant influence in our thinking. We can think carnality, carnally. We can have affections that are fleshly. We can have conduct that's unbecoming to Christians. And even though they are those in whom the Spirit of God dwells. However, while we are while we all show more carnality at times than we should, this does not mean that there is a class of Christians that are carnal, who are indeed genuine Christians, who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior, but have not made any headway in their Christian life for years. Many, in certain circles of the church, have developed this idea that they are just carnal. They're carnal. They're saved because they trusted in Jesus as their Savior, but they're carnal Christians. Now, maybe you've had this experience, but I know early in my Christian life, I was brought, into, brought to faith in Christ in a church that was influenced by this teaching. And every Sunday evening was an altar call. Every Sunday evening was an altar call. And it went something like this. If you're here this evening and you've never received Jesus as your Savior, you need to trust in him tonight. And why don't you come forward and, and, and we'll lead you in the sinner's prayer and you'll, you'll, be, you'll become a Christian tonight. 
and some people would come forward. Then the preacher would say something like this. Now, maybe you receive Jesus as your Savior, but you have not lived the way you should be living because you've never made him Lord of your life. So the altar is open to those who want to make Jesus now Lord of their lives. Now, what was that all about? It was this notion that you could actually be a carnal Christian and be saved. That's not what Paul is saying here. There's no, there's no, there's no condition, there's no, there's no situation, there's no circumstance in which carnal, carnal Christians can be carnal Christians and to be saved. Now, it is carnality and a best at best, rank immaturity that was the cause for this movement in, into, into groups in the Corinth church, says Paul. It's, mere, it's, it's, it's infantile thinking. It's not becoming to Christians to be able to say in your mind, sift between, yeah, the, guy, the guy's personality kind of, it's, but and say, no, but he's teaching the word. You know, there are people that could not stand Paul's, Paul's personality. Imagine that. They made fun of him. You know, I mean, he, must have, he must have been cross-eyed or something. He must have preached like this all the time. You know, people, people couldn't, get, they couldn't, get, they couldn't get that out of their head and hear what the man was saying. That is infantile thinking. That is sheer carnality. Who made man deaf? Who made man dumb? What did the Lord God say to Moses? I did. I did. So here they are. Some followed Paul and others followed Apollos. We know from reading between the lines of the New Testament that Apollos was a gifted orator. Paul probably wasn't. This was mingled with jealousy and strife among them. This was evidence that they were operating in the flesh. Now note, Paul doesn't say, well, they're just carnal. <laughs> he does say that. But it's not okay. It's not okay. And we'll see in two weeks, actually, it could be evidence that you're not a Christian at all. Okay? He does not say that what they need to do is make Jesus their Lord now. In fact, he warns them, as I'll say a couple of weeks, that if this kind of celebrity pastor adoration with its jealousy and strife continues, they risk the eternal judgment of God because at root it's carnal. This does not support the carnal Christian teaching. Again, I've, I've dealt with folk. I, I, I've tried, I, I trust I'm kind. But I've heard it among us too here. Oh, especially parents. Listen, little Carl, he trusted in Jesus as his Savior when he was in high school, my little Carl. I know that he has to be a Christian, and that gives me hope that he will go to heaven when he dies but he's not walking with Jesus. You know, he's, he's not. He's partying and he's drugging and he's kind of doing his own thing and he's into money and he's, you know, he's just continuing to follow you know, his own way. Uh, he must be a carnal Christian. I, I read that somewhere. He must be a carnal Christian. I wish he were not and he would, he would make Jesus his Lord for he'd be happier, but at least he's saved. Really? Did you listen to the American gospel if you saw it two weeks ago? Don't confuse works as a root, but make sure you don't mess it up as a fruit. 
Where's the fruit in little Carl's life? Listen, I, I, I do believe there can be deathbed conversions, but they're rare. They're very rare. And we all have had lost loved ones, haven't we? Who've died and we've just hoped. Maybe we said to ourselves, maybe at the last, somewhere they came to faith. And maybe they didn't. And we've got to face the honest truth about that. We have to face the honest truth. And this idea that somehow little Carl, because he became a Christian or because he decided to follow Jesus and said the sinner's prayer at the Billy Graham crusade, he's, in, he's, he's got it made. So I can have this carnality, this carnal Christian thinking, and it's not what this text is saying. But the, but the, the root of this, again, this this. this party spirit, this preferring Apollos to Paul or Paul to Apollos and, and the strife and the conflict that was going on was because of their carnality. It was because of their carnality. And he warns them. See, it was this kind of division that Paul talks about later in chapter 3 of destroying the church. And if you destroy the church, God will destroy you. So Paul is not saying, oh, to Carl's mom, oh yeah, he's just a carnal Christian. Well, you can take comfort in the fact that he received Jesus as his. No. I wouldn't want to say to Carl's mom, I don't know for sure, but little Carl doesn't seem to be walking with Jesus right now. Right? But it is carnality. See, the, the root of all kinds of division in the church, of strife, and this just is one form of it. You know, he talks, about, he, he talks about division and strife and jealousy in the church. Wherever that's found, whatever form it takes, it happens to take the form here of, of celebrity pastorhood. It's not so much a problem today. I've known of situations where someone comes into a church, sits in a pulpit, sits in a pulpit, yeah, sits in a pew, and this lady comes up and says, "You're sitting in my place." Carnality. Carnality. It's wicked, and this just happens to be one form of it. Well, I prefer Apollos. I prefer Paul. I like John Piper. I like Paul Washer. Well, okay, benefit from them. Like, yeah, do that, but don't don't simply idolize them. So the source of such party division and celebrity pastor worship was their carnality, and this is always a problem. What's the solution? Repentance. <laughs> Repentance needs to be the medicine, right? And renewed feeding on the gospel, the food, to greater maturity. You don't want to stay with these kinds of mentalities. So maybe the Lord is testing us in this transition and saying, hey, look, guys, you know, whoever God calls here, are you going to be, are you going to be welcoming if, if he's true and faithful to the word? Whether he looks like this or not, I mean... Very important. So understand the sin of such an attitude. Really? You got me? You with me? We're tuning in? Okay. Okay. Second, 
to reject such ungodly preferences of those who minister the same gospel. We need to understand the true role of those called to minister the gospel. Okay? Now, I'll come back over this in different ways in two weeks, but let's go on. Verse 5. When then, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Now the question Paul puts to us, his readers, is telling. I like the way he puts it. He frames it in such a way as to underscore that the real power and real influence behind those who minister the word, regardless of their personalities, now let me qualify, who faithfully minister the word, right? I'm not talking about I'm talking not about preaching heresy. I'm talking, I'm talking about those who faithfully preach the word. The real power and influence behind those who minister the word faithfully, regardless of their personality or giftedness, is God. And Mark stressed that this morning at the end of his class. It's all about him. It's all about God. So notice how Paul puts it. I like it. I like it. I need to hear this. What is Apollos? What is Paul? He doesn't say, who is Apollos? <laughs> or who is Paul? He says, what are they? What are they? Those who minister the word, they're instruments in God's hand. That's what they are. They're flesh and blood, for heaven's sakes. They're servants whom indeed God uses to bring people to faith and help them grow in their faith, their instruments, their servants. It is God who assigns them their particular giftedness and he assigns them their particular field of ministry. It's God who does that. God is operating behind the scenes all the time. It's God. Both Paul and Apollos at different times ministered the word in the same church at Corinth. But their particular functions were different. Paul planted the church. His ministry was to plant the church. God used Paul to lay the foundation of the gospel, to give those little babies to establish a gospel nursery. <laughs> right? Giving them that rudimentary milk of the gospel. Again, so he led many of them to saving faith. Then he moved on. Sometimes wonder, Paul, Paul wasn't there sometimes long and moved on. Apollos followed, apparently. Even Peter must have been there. We don't know much more about that. Apollos followed, and he watered. He watered. He simply preached the gospel so as to help those newly planted believers grow. Neither Paul could bring them to faith, nor could Apollos, by watering the plants, cause them to grow. Yet they would not be Christians if God had not sent Paul, because that's how God ordained to do it. Could God do it without Paul? Yeah. Why does God choose to use people? 
<laughs> because God's a comedian. I tongue in cheek, but I mean, isn't it amazing that God would use any of us the way he does? But that's the whole point, okay? Yet, they would not be Christians if God had not sent Paul to plant and then sent Apollos to water. But make no mistake about it, Paul is very clear here, it was God who gave the growth. It was God who gave the growth. God has ends, he has means. He's in sovereign, is over them. All right? So those who were called to minister the word of the gospel that Paul calls the wisdom and power of God, the message of Christ crucified, note this. Listen, are you with me? They're on the same team. What would happen if the Boston Red Sox, they played today? They are. My wife's a fan. They are. They are. They're playing today, okay? What would happen if they all of a sudden come out of the dugout fist fighting with one another on the same team? And the fans jump in and break up and say, no, I'm going to fight for Mookie Best. You're going to fight for whoever, Benintendi or something. And they all get together and they start going to blows for one another. They're on the same team. What are you, nuts? That's what Paul is saying. Now, listen, <laughs> you, you might have, you, 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 again, I know that Cheryl's a Red Sox fan. I know my granddaughter is a Houston Astros fan. I know Nana and and Grinny sometimes might disagree, all right? But you have a team, right? You vote, you're, 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 but maybe in the team you ha you're a fan of a particular player, right? I mean, that's why they print those jerseys. That's why, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you walk around and say, I identify with Mookie Betts, you know? You know, you know, it, you know, it, it, you know it's, it's, it's all about money, of course, and about hero worship and all that stuff. But it has no place in the Church of Jesus Christ. It has zero place here. Zero. We're on the same team. We're on the same team. We can appreciate the differences and various gifts of those who minister the word, but we must not place one above the other. Those who hold fast the gospel are committed to the scriptures and to the glory of God are one. They will express the message through different lives and different giftedness. But he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wage according to his labors. And those who are truly orthodox ministers of the word, notice what I said, are God's fellow workers. Now, the Net Bible translates it, I think, correctly. Not so much that God needs me. All right, The issue is, that Paul and Apollos were fellow workers who belonged together to God. Okay? That's what, that's what the text is saying. Not that they were necessarily, again, God couldn't do anything without them. Now, God ordains the means to the ends. I understand that. But when he says they're fellow workers, he's talking, Apollos sees Paul as a fellow worker, and they both see themselves as committed to God. God owns them. Okay? They're fellow workers together under God. And that's the point. So, this is how I want to regard those who are my peers. And it's a danger for pastors too, especially, again, you know, well, Pastor Bill's church is growing like weeds. 
Maybe that's not a good illustration. <laughs> Maybe that's really what is happening, you know? You know? And, and here we are, you know, the, the sacred few get together and, oh, man, what's he doing over there? You know, if he's preaching the gospel and I'm preaching the gospel, we're doing the same thing, right? It's not a matter of rearranging the furniture, coming up with better pizzazz programs. It's a matter of faithfulness to the word. And God's the one who decides what churches will grow from that and what might plateau. Or, you know, it, it's, it's, that's, that's the, the romance in a sense of, of being called to the pastoral ministry. I'm amazed at times. I prepare a message thinking, this is going to really be good. And it dies in process. <laughs> at least it seems that way to me. And some will come up a week or two later and say, you know when you said that, it really, God just humbles me. I know I'm not the, gift, the, the greatest preacher in the world. I never will be. You know, I know that. But you see, this is how even ministers, how Apollos was to view Paul and Paul Apollos. This is how you are to regard me and whoever God calls. Whoever God calls. So we need to appreciate the role of a the role of the minister of the word. What what is it? Again, we're on the same team. We're servants. We minister the word. Uh, God gives the increase. And that should help you say, okay, I I can appreciate this man and his pulpit ministry. I can appreciate uh, listening to so and so on YouTube. I appreciate that. But again, be guarded. All right. There's some stuff out there that's not good. All right. Okay. Third to help us not to have party spirits and not to have celebrity pastorhood in our veins. We need to understand the true weight here, the true weight that rests on the shoulders of those who minister the word to us. Listen to what Paul says. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Verse 8, then verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now listen, Paul is speaking specifically here of what awaits those like me, not Christians in general. You hear me? He's talking about those who are called to minister the word, primarily teaching elders, but Sunday school teachers, personal workers, people who are called to teach and preach. But particularly, people who are in my capacity. That's a sobering reality. Let few of you be teachers. 
those who minister the word need to be sure that they build on that apostolic foundation in such a way that their teaching lines up squarely with that foundation. When you build a foundation, you don't build a superstructure outside the foundation. You don't do that. Your, your superstructure, and I'm not a builder. Some of you guys are better builders than I am, you know. But, but you know that the foundation provides not only support, but for some kind of guidelines for how a superstructure needs to go up. There are many. There are many today who are building on something other than this foundation, or they try to build on that foundation, but they want to get innovative and go out over here in some, some kind of a bay window that goes out miles away from the foundation. Can't do that. You can't do that. So they need to be built squarely on the foundation. Teaching, biblical teaching, teaching, preaching has to line up with that foundation of Christ crucified. And so those who minister the word need to make sure that they build with sound doctrine of gold, silver, and precious stones. Not with their own error of wood, hay, or stubble. They need to be sure that they minister the word in humility also. And that their ministry of the truth of the word was not contradicted by a life that was, not, was out of line with the gospel. For, for, they will, for their work will be tested through fire on that day, that day of judgment. Then the true quality of their work will be tested and exposed. The true story, the final story is not up yet. It's not up. It will be. If all their work burns up, now I guess it's possible. I, I'm, 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 I'm amazed at this, what Paul says, and that just shows me that I don't have, I don't have <laughs> infinite knowledge. All right. If all their work burns up, here's this guy who's ministered for years, but he hasn't, he's just built with wood, hay, and stubble. He didn't know it. On that day, it'll all burn up. Nothing will last for the glory of God. He'll be saved, Paul says, but barely, as do fire. I also happen to believe there'll be people that won't be saved who are heretics, who won't be. But it's a possibility of someone who's truly a believer, who truly trusts in Jesus Christ, who's in this capacity as a preacher, and just never really... And you see, you see, and that's where you come in. You've got to hold the preacher accountable. The elders, that's why we have elders. The elders, see, if the elders came to me and said, Lou, uh, what are you doing talking about this, you know, these, these, these spiritual stones that people are supposed to put in their house and, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll get some karma from. You know, what, what, are you, what are you doing? Well, I saw it on YouTube. <laughs> Thought it was a good idea, you know? Way of making the church some more money? We can sell them? Thank God for the board of elders. You see, they, they keep the teaching elder in check, but it goes beyond that to you as well. But So I, I just scratch my head and that's why you do need, the, you do need a, a congregation of people who understand the word. But note this. Listen. 
The last thing those who minister the word need is to be exalted by carnal fans who mistakenly flatter their egos. What we need, you know what every faithful pastor really would like to see, I don't know if need is the right word, is prayer cover. Well, I guess I'd say need. I need prayer cover and prayer support. And, and, a, and a congregation of people who are eager to receive the word. Nothing does a pastor's heart good more than, better, more than knowing people can't wait to be here on Sunday morning. And, and they love the Lord's Day. And, and, and their schedule is such that that's the priority. Because we've got to be with the word. That's what we need. And what this means, you see, is that the Lord God is the one who is in control. Listen. There is indeed mystery here. There's mystery. We know from Revelation that congregations that lose their hunger for the gospel and their submissive heart to the scriptures will have the lampstand of the word taken from them. You can look at every liberal church and see it happened. Happened. What happened? Well, maybe false teachers came in, I understand, but the, ch the church tolerated it. They tolerated it. And eventually, the appetite for the word just vanished. Ichabod! The Lord's glory has departed. May it never happen here. There's been a faithful witness in this little body of believers since 1849 and prior to that. May it continue. Pastors have come. Pastors have gone. Congregations changed. People die. People come in. People are converted. If you want to see the church thrive for the future and grow and mature for the glory of God, then own the responsibility of being a faithful member of this church. A faithful member. Paul stresses this in 2 Timothy. That there are, there are churches that move away from orthodox teaching. In fact, they cannot tolerate the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Right? It's your best life now. Thousands go and hear Joel Osteen. <laughs> and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. To such churches, you see, that lack a hunger for the word, God fulfills his warning through Amos. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. The hearing of the words of the Lord. But when a local church is gospel saturated and has a love for the scriptures and teaching elders and pastors are gospel men, gospel men who, who love Christ and the truth of the scriptures and are committed to sound doctrine and the faithful preaching and teaching of the word, there is no room. There is no room 
for the kind of division and party spirit found here in Corinth. There's no room for it. There's no room for it. There's no room for it. And we will look at this in more detail in two weeks. But the bottom line is that it is the Lord God who calls. It's the Lord God who sends faithful men to faithful churches. Note that. Now, God may send faithful men to unfaithful churches to revive the work. But when a church remains solid and faithful, God will send faithful men. They may look like me for 20 years. I'm sorry. They may look like someone else for 20 more. So let us see this as God's gift and not become unduly attached to any one faithful minister of the word. That simple. So pray for Nathaniel. Pray for Nathaniel. And pray for us. And get out to adult Sunday school. Really. Make time in your schedule. It's good stuff. Amen. Those who are serving the table and the musicians come back up as we go to the Lord's table.